Francine and Byron are the founders and co-authors of Celebrate Love and Embrace Marriage courses. As international speakers and authors of numerous articles on marriage, more than 3,000 couples have attended their programs, workshops and conferences. This talk was recorded in collaboration between Cradio.org.au and xt3.com. Um, look, it's great to see you all here. We're kind of just trying to work out where to stand so that we don't block screens and things like that. Um, it's a delight to be here and talk on our favourite topic, which is marriage, and particularly in this context of evangelisation. And um, you guys have had the advantage of having some time over, at least today, some of you all week, to be reflecting on evangelisation. So I guess I'd be really interested to know what's your taking takeaway definition of evangelisation. Like if you were just going to say, you know, pretend I'm not a Catholic and never heard the word. What's evangelisation? And I guess when we put that in with this topic of marriage, um, there's three different ways that we think that it relates together. Firstly, we evangelise each other as a couple. And that's really, if you like, the job description or the mission of marriage is to help each other discover God ever more deep in our lives. And in fact, we like to say, my, my job, my role, my mission as a wife is to love Byron as much as I possibly can so that he will have a concrete um, experience of God's love in So it's really, it's, it's my job, I'm sent by God, I'm missioned by God to bring God's love to Byron as his wife and obviously vice versa Byron for me. And that's a lifelong task of helping each other to grow spiritually, to deepen our faith, um, and to really help each other um, to heaven. Um, and so the, the whole evangelising um, aspect of marriage is, is really very central to marriage itself. Um, and we'd like to, I guess, explore that a little bit. We're just going to leave it there, but we will come back to that in just a moment and look at ways that we can kind of develop our marriage and our relationships so that we can more effectively do that. Another obvious way that we evangelise is obviously children. Um, and as those of us who are parents know only too well that making the child, procreating the child is really only a really small part of it. You know, it's one moment of pleasure, isn't it? And then there's, a, you know, 20 or 30 years of raising them and bringing in all that spiritual parenthood and nourishing them and helping them to come and know and to understand God. So, and that's a task where the marriage relationship and the stability of family is so vitally important in achieving that goal. So, you know, this, this relationship is not just about evangelising each other, it's also about evangelising our children. And then thirdly, finally, I think we're also called as couples um, to evangelise the culture and take the mission and the, the message of God's love out to the culture. And in the work that we do, we believe very, very powerfully and strongly that couples are, have a very specific role to play in that and that we are called to be quite prophetic witnesses of God's love um, in our communities and in our culture. And in order to do that, I think to be effective evangelisers in the culture, we have to understand what the culture is about, what the culture is doing, what the culture is thinking, and also know how that is in conflict with what the culture of the church is. And so for the first part of this talk, what we'd like to do is look at four key areas, marriage, sex, gender differences, and romantic love. 
and contrast, if you like, the cultural understanding of perceptions of philosophy with what the church's perceptions is. So that but we found it very helpful to do this little exercise because it, it helps us to then enter into discussions in a much more um, sort of robust way and to, to formulate our own responses and our own kind of ideas based on the foundation of the church's teachings and, and, and understand why you know people get into trouble in the relationship. I think uh, evangelization for me is very much like parenting. It's different, but it's got very many similar characteristics. So if you think about parenting, one of the, the most profound bits of parenting advice we ever saw or received was the statement which said, worry not that your children won't do what you tell them. Worry more that they will watch what you do. All right? It's exactly the same with evangelization. And if you look at our culture and you ask, you know, wh where, where is the culture today and where is God's message most powerfully going to intersect with that culture, most powerfully speak to the, the aching heart of the culture? It's in the area of sexuality. We have a culture that has a broken understanding and a hunger for sexuality. And as a church, you ask yourself, where is the strongest, the most powerful, the most poignant understanding of sexuality? It's in the sacrament of matrimony. So as a church, if we want to evangelise in our world, one of, the, one of the, not the only, but one of the most powerful ways is we can live, not speak, but live a married life that speaks to the truth of God's vision for what it means to be human, what it means to be man, what it means to be woman. What it means to be betrothed to him as our, as our spiritual spouse. So worry not, as a church, that the culture will not listen to what we say. Worry more that they will watch the way we live. And hence marriage on fire. If our marriages in our church are dry, dull, hurtful, and non-sexual, then the message we convey to the culture is that God's vision for sexuality is dry, hurtful, etc., etc. And as, as a Jesuit priest who married us and who was a real expert in this uh, subject said to us, said to many people, but said to us, he said... He said that it's until the culture looks at the church and says, what is it with those Catholics? What is it about those Catholics? I don't get it, but I want what they have. That until we strike that moment, our evangelising words are going to be hollow. So, the challenge for married couples is to recognise what both the church holds out and, by the way, the Australian... Law holds out. Marriage is not a private contract. It's a public good. The law holds that out, and that's why there's so much controversy over the changing the definition of marriage, because you're changing a public good. <coughs> marriage has a private aspect, but you don't get married private. It's personal. You don't get married privately. You get married publicly. And the church witnesses what you do because their church recognises that by the way a married couple live their lives and commit themselves to each other, in the words of John Paul, they most 
The, most the, the way they do that is in human terms, the most powerful analogy, the most powerful witness we can have of God's unconditional love for us. That's the heart of the sacrament. So, let's unpack what marriage means a little bit because we live in a world where I think most of us actually have become dull to the difference between what the church holds out for what marriage is and what the culture holds out. So just to give you a bit of an outline of what we're going to talk about, we'll start with looking at this contrast in the culture. Culture wars, we'll take a little bit of a break just at the end of that so that you can ask some questions and share some of your insights. It'd be really good just to pull some of the thoughts and um, reactions that you're having at that point. And then in the second part, we're going to look at, um, I guess, some practical application of some of those insights, looking then at our relationships as men and women, and then finishing up with some really practical strategies that we found to be really very effective in helping couples just live their lives and their marriages more passionately and joyfully. So, the culture wars. Yeah, so let's talk about what the culture versus what the church holds out as true about marriage, love, marriage, sex and gender. Uh, if you start with the culture, I think if you had to grab a, a definition of what does the culture say about what love is, I think generally we describe it as a feeling. Typically, we're talking about romantic love here, so not just you know, love or boredom, but this notion of sort of romantic attachment and love. Um, it's a kind of, you know, we use the language where we fell in love, and then we say, well, I've fallen out of love. And I feel oh. really loving at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, you know, we, we use the word the feeling a lot. But it, it's not wrong. There is, a, there is definitely an emotional dimension to it. And um, it's quite interesting to reflect a little bit on the brain sciences. And some of you may have heard of this already because it is getting into the popular uh, magazines and the popular media now. But, you know, they've studied actually what happens in our brains when we fall in love. And it's got a scientific name, it's called limerence, or, or infatuation is a little bit similar, but limerence is the technical term. And basically we get a flood of neurotransmitters through our brain that causes um, quite specific changes. So we get um, dopamine, for example, which is associated with addiction. So you know, when you stay, take um, cocaine or heroin, you've got dopamine, <laughs> it's being activated. So there's this addictive kind of dimension. It's also, dopamine is also associated with pleasure, um, and certainly falling in love. It's very pleasurable experience. It's very exciting. We also get a lot of noradrenaline. Noradrenaline in the body is associated with high energy. Um, it, it, it's, it's sort of the hormone that activates us for, for action. And when we fall in love, we find we have lots of energy. We don't seem to need as much sleep. We don't need seem to eat as much. Um, you know, we, we, we just sort of in this heightened sort of state of, 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 sort of action. Um, and the third one is phenylethylamine or PEA. And that's associated with um, lowering sexual inhibition, um, lowering um, our, sort of, our natural sort of defensive um, barriers. So, so you sit up normally, all night and you talk to each so other. So we're a little bit and shy. And you tell each other secrets you haven't you told anybody. Talk, right? And the, the guys, guys open up. Down. The guys start talking. It's amazing. Yeah. And it's this wonderful, <laughs> and it also generates this sense of euphoria. It's absolutely a wonderful experience to fall in love. So when you fall in love, you basically you lose your mind. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you see this in people, right? They lose all sense of judgment. Oh, he's just delightful. She's the most, she's an angel. And you're thinking, Susan? You're <laughs> <laughs> talking about the same Susan? You're talking about my daughter? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, people literally become chemically and, and, and overwhelmed. And, it, and it's fantastic and it wears off. So if you think that was love, 
then there's only one thing you can be sure of. Love's going to wear off. Yeah, it takes about between six and 18 months. Because the, the brain, brain, to the brain adjusts. adjusts. It adjusts for it. It literally adjusts to the stimulus. So all of a sudden, couples think, I'm no longer in love. Because right. they're not experiencing the intensity of the euphoria associated with that memorable experience. So the feeling's gone. All that intense feeling's gone. And this is the problem with this definition of love is just a feeling. Is that feelings come and go. Right? I don't feel very, you know, I don't feel like work today. I do feel like work today. You know? I feel energetic. I feel happy. I feel sad. I feel in love. I don't feel very loving today. And if you live your life like that, then you are out of control. You have given over control of your life to these transient feelings. And it becomes self-focused. I don't feel in love. And so you just imagine what happens if you build a relationship, a romantic relationship, and enter into marriage on an understanding that your love is built on the foundation of a feeling. Because when I'm not feeling in love anymore, and I'm not feeling like this marriage is working anymore, it can't be my fault. Right. And I remember so, early, on in our, early on in our marriage, because I really kind of bought into this, because this is such a strong message that we get through the mass media, mm-hmm. that, this, you know, that, is the, that some total of romantic love is this euphoric kind of feeling. And I remember kind of you know, noticing that, well, the intensity wasn't there anymore, and questioning, feeling really confused, that you know, was, I, you know, was I falling out of love, had I made a wrong decision, was this not the person that God wanted me to marry, and so on. And it kind of brought in a whole lot of self-doubt. The other problem with this kind of thing is that it tends to make us really self-focused because we're sort of thinking about well, why aren't I feeling in love rather than other focus, which is really the, very much the essence. And this of takes us to the love. church's definition. The Catholic Church holds out that romantic love is probably the best described as a gift of self. The call of romantic love is to be a gift to another person. Right? And marriage is a total, mutual, exclusive gift of each other to the other person. And, and what this brings in is the definition. Of, yes, it's got the emotion, but it's also got the will, the intent. We are cognitive beings. We aren't captive to our emotions, and we can actually decide to work against our feelings. I don't feel like getting exercise, but I need it. I feel like eating chocolate, but I don't need it. You know, we, 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 we do this all the time in our lives, and it's exactly the same. as The church is basically saying love is both an emotional feeling, but it's an intentional act. And if you want a definition of love, because we think we're talking about this in the context of romantic love, but let me take you to another form of love, which is because they're actually, you know, the Greek, the Greek have three words for love, we have one, right? But yeah, my my mother nursed my my parents nursed my grandmother through dementia, you know, right through to the last stages where she went basically to a hospital, into a hospice. Now, my father was a doctor, so they could do what most people couldn't do in a home environment. But was that pleasurable? Did they feel great about that every day? It turned their lives upside down, but was it an act of love? Absolutely. Anyone who's parented in this room knows that parenting is about 80% will. <laughs> right? You know, I, I remember with our um, 12-month-old had a middle ear infection. And anyone who's had kids have got a middle ear infection, they can't lie down. The pressure, the blood pre- the pressure on the ear. So you, until you can get Panadol into which you sometimes can't at two o'clock in the morning when you run out, you, you hold them upright. So I sat in a rocking chair with my 18-month-old on my shoulder all night 
until I had to go to work at six in the morning, at which stage I gave Francine the baby and I said, here she is, I've got to get to work. And when she's 16 and she says, Daddy, you don't love me, stop me because I'll kill her. <laughs> right? That's parenting. Right? Is it, uh, do you do it because you she's feel... She's heard that story many times, by the way, and she's never said, Daddy, you don't love me. No, she knows you don't <laughs> And that's my point is, you don't do that because you feel loving. You, you take your will. I love this child. You don't think twice about it. You act out of will. And this is the point. The church basically says romantic love is a combination of both the feelings but also the intent. So it has both a subjective um, emotional con- aspect and also a visible content. I just thought I'd just... A very short quote from John Paul II from his Theology of the Body. The human body, with its sex, its masculinity and femininity, includes the capacity of expressing love, that love in which the person becomes a gift. So again, we're very much... In- we, Byron and I, are very much informed by theology of the body of Pope John Paul II, and this is kind of coming right out of that, um, that sort of theolo- theological... So there's a contrast. Love is a feeling. No, love is a gift of self. It involves feelings, but it's not just a feeling. Marriage. I, I think if you had to summarise up what does culture say about marriage, and let's put aside the whole argument about is it gender-specific, which we're going to at the moment, but they basically, I think, say marriage is for the purpose of mutual happiness. Yep, you come together, you live your life, she's happy, he's happy, that's the purpose of marriage, two people living a happy life. And I don't think there's, you know, should marriage be for the purpose of making you unhappy? No. So it's not completely incorrect, it's just an inadequate definition. And, and the problem with it is, is that as soon as we start feeling a little bit unhappy, and anybody who's been married for more than two or three years minutes. know, you have two or three minutes, knows that you go through seasons, there's ups and downs. And it might not even be an unhappiness that's endemic from the relationship, it might just be an unhappiness with your life that's generally. Life. But as soon as we start to, if you think that the purpose of marriage is to make me happy, the moment I'm unhappy, well then subconsciously I'm thinking the marriage is failing. And so we're making this automatic... Um, you know, assumption that the marriage is failing to do what it's supposed to do if I'm unhappy. And I know I want to be happy, so if I'm unhappy and I don't want it, it's got to be his fault, right? <laughs> <laughs> Who else could it be? Who right? else could it be? Right? And so this is, this again leaves you helpless. If you buy into, if you buy into the view of the purpose of marriage is to make you happy, then you will automatically, subconsciously, feel your marriage is failing every time you feel unhappy. And, and yeah, again, if, if, if just to contrast how silly these statements are that on the surface seem right, and these beliefs that seem reasonable are, if somebody told you the purpose of food was pleasure, you'd probably say, well, no, it's not. It's nutrition. It's pleasurable to eat. Some food is incredibly pleasurable. <coughs> But the purpose of food is not pleasure, right? And so we, we see we, we sort of get an inadequate definition. Yeah. Um, so what's the Catholic Church hold out? The Catholic Church holds out that the purpose of marriage is to actually reveal God's love. It's evangelisation right there. To who? To each other. We'll come to that in a minute. Our immediate family, our children, and those we live with. To the community. Mm. So the, the church holds out the purpose of marriage is actually, if you re, rephrase that term in today's to context, is to evangelise. starts off by evangelising each other. And we get the, uh, the clue from that even in the word the sacrament. 
that marriage is a sacrament. And if you go into kind of the basic definition of what a sacrament is, we know that there are two very important dimensions to it. One is, is that a sacrament is a sign. Is that in some, some mysterious, incredible, wonderful way, it points us to God. It reveals God to us in some way. And marriage is like one of the other seven sacraments. It's like it's with each of the sacraments are beaming a light onto God and revealing a different dimension of who God is and what God is. And it's here, God is this incredible mystery. One sacrament is never enough to reveal all of them, all the aspects of God. We've got seven of them. And they're all illuminating different dimensions of God and what God, who God is. Um, and so that's one aspect of sacrament, is that revealing who God is and being a sign of God's life. And the other is, is being a source of grace that enables us to live our lives and live our sacrament of matrimony in a way that makes us effective in bringing this message to, to other people. So, think of the marriage vows for a moment. I can't think of the exact words, right? It was 25 years ago. Francine will remind me. I take you. <laughs> Here she goes. Um, but we basically make a public commitment to love each other totally, faithfully, fruitfully, and exclusively. Or freely. Freely, freely. You freely make that commitment, right? There's nothing in those vows about, you will make me happy. <laughs> no, seriously, think about it. Who's married here? Right? And in bad times, there's nothing about, I will do this so long as you do that. Right? Any lawyers in the room? It's, it's fascinating. You sit down with a lawyer and you ask a lawyer, have you ever seen a client or let a client sign a contract that is completely unconditional? Unconditional with no exit clause. No exit clause and it's completely unconditional. There's not a single condition precedent, nothing that the other person has to do. You basically have no rights. And you both enter into this relationship where you say, I have no rights over you, you have, no, you have all rights over me, and we do that simultaneously. It's a mystery. I think it does have rights, though. I, she has rights over me. Yeah. I have none over her. I will be true to you. To That's right. She has a right from me to be true. I but have an obligation. Your, but if you do the, the Ah, yeah, no, that's right. We both make but but I have actually But if uh, one doesn't do it to the other, that doesn't give you the right to not do it to them. That's right. Oh, I see what you're saying. So I, I make an obligation to her, she makes an obligation to me. That's the other way to think about it. There's no condition that they have to meet me halfway. Oh, yeah. Right? And this is I mean, if you actually stop and think about that for a moment, we're we're all insane to do this. Right? It's not. It doesn't make sense humanly. Right? It's a mystery. And it's not even possible to do it humanly, no. which is why we need God's grace. But, but just think about this for a minute, this evangelising point for a moment. If I love Francine the way my vows ask me, which is basically in human terms to do the best job to reveal to her unconditional love, then where else will she experience as closely as that God's unconditional love of her? Because this is not just a friendship. This is an intimate sexual relationship. We know each other like nobody knows us. We love each other like nobody knows us. My parents love me, not the same way Francine loves me. They don't know me the way Francine knows me. And so we reveal to each other primarily God's unconditional love. This is what John Paul says. He says, of all the analogies in the Bible, right, the vine and the branches, the good shepherd, all the analogies we have to try and explain God to us, the most powerful 
and the most adequate, or he says actually says he says the least inadequate. In other words, the best is the nothing can do it fully. Nothing can do it fully. All analogies break down, but the most powerful and the least inadequate is is the nuptial relationship, marriage, because nowhere else in all the in, in our culture, in our world, in human existence, do we have two people who completely unconditionally make themselves available to the other with no hold back. That's what we're called to do. It's impossible. It's impossible to do to live the vows fully. And in fact, when you understand that about scripture, it might be something if you, you kind of just put those sort of ears on when you're reading scripture going forward, it is amazing how many times in the scriptures there is a, a spousal or a nuptial analogies all the way through the Old Testament. You'll get it in the Psalms, you get it in you know, the stories and the prophets, you know, God saying, I will betroth you to me. Um, that kind of language, all the way through it, is the this sort of analogy of the spousal relationship between God. And that's why marriage is such an important part of the church's mission, is because it goes right to the very heart, the very central aspect of who God is and his relationship to us as his people, as his chosen people. Um, it is revealed and, and consolidated by marriage. And when marriage is kind of undermined, it sort of makes a mockery of that reality of God. It's sort of like a, it becomes like a false prophet, witnessing to an ass, witnessing to uh, what God isn't. God is freely enters into a relationship with us. He is a permanent relationship. It is faithful. It is total. He gives us everything. It's um, it's it's fruitful. He does for us. Right. I mean, that is the nature of God's relationship with us. And so when marriage breaks down and stops being those things, it's like a false prophet proclaiming that God is something that he's not. Does that make sense? So, how much does that understate what this really is calling us to be as married couples? And if you live your life that way, as inadequate as we do, we become like a beacon on the hill. We become a place where people can start to understand, because it's amazing. Married love is amazing. It's so ordinary, but it's extraordinary. It's, it's every day, but when you actually understand what's going on, it's extraordinary. It doesn't make sense. Right? It's like these teenage kids when we sometimes talk at schools and they say, you, know, you, know, you let them ask questions and eventually somebody puts their hand up because they've been dying to ask it. And they say, don't you get bored having sex with the same person all the time? <laughs> and I just love it. When I, I wait for that question because I say, I know I sleep with a different woman every night. She's not the same person she was yesterday, yet alone a week ago, yet alone the 21-year-old I married. We know each other. The, the biblical term to know is a sexual reference. They talk about they knew each other. You know each other in marriage in a way that nobody knows you. The only person who knows you better in marriage is God. And if you want to talk about two intimate things that married couples can do, I'm not sure which is more intimate, but this, is, this really calls it out that knowing. One is making love. Right? You get that. The other is praying together. And I don't mean the Our Father or the Hail Mary, which are all fine to do, or saying the Rosary. They're all good things. But I mean those vulnerable moments of prayer when you speak to God. with Because no, who you feeling when you talk to God? No boundaries. You've got no masks. It's, it's spiritual nakedness. It's a spiritual nakedness. And so very few of us do that. We might pray publicly in, you know, in communal prayer. But we very rarely pray to the... You know, some people can, but we often don't. But as a married couple, you can. And so this vision of marriage, this call of marriage for the church, is unbelievably rich. 
and it's actually a call to evangelization. We just don't think of it that way. We think of it as a call to happiness. And, and, and if I love Francine like I'm called to and she loves me, will we be happy? Yeah. Uh, but it's not the purpose of marriage. It's an outcome. Okay. Um, sex. I think we've got vastly different views in a culture and in a church about sex. And it's worth kind of just breaking it down a little bit so that we can kind of get a bit more of a handle on it. In the culture, the pop culture, pretty much what we hear is the purpose of sex is pleasure. So we hear things like, um, you know, what's good for you, or what's good for you as it was for me. You know, um, we use yeah. the language of it, so we talk about it as a recreate, it's like an activity, a recreational activity. Um, and it's all kind of feeding into this notion of, well, you know, the purpose and the reason why you engage in sex is pleasure. It's a very limited kind of... We sort of even forget it's got a biological dimension to it these days. Yeah, That's so almost like a, a secondary nuisance. Because, because we chemically or barrier shut that down, yeah. right? So we can just focus on the pleasure, right? So we, we sort of forget um, what it is. And, and the problem, I guess, the, the, problem not wrong. This, the problem yeah. with this is a couple of things. Firstly, it separates body and soul. So it becomes an activity that the body does that is divorced from our spiritual lives and particularly divorced from our moral lives um, in the culture. And, you know, obviously, you know, we've got a very different message from the church around that. But I think it actually dehumanises us as persons and it also diminishes the power of the act of, <coughs> the act of sex when we eliminate a whole definition of ourselves that's not involved in it. The second thing that it does is it sort of makes us technique focused. We start thinking about, you know, we've got the right position, are we getting, you know, are we trying, we've got There's to There's a great American things, sex therapist. Gotta, you know, try and push the boundaries all the time with each other and, you know, Swing from the chandelier. We speak to a lot of you keep saying that, but I'm so glad we don't have a chandelier. <laughs> I'm dying to try it. <laughs> um, we speak to a lot of couples and um, in the work that we do. And uh, you know, the the danger of just getting sidetracked where they're sort of focused on the technical aspects of making love, but they've forgotten that they're making love to a person. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it becomes sort of like this shallow encounter where they're sort of emotionalised and detached from it. And it's, American, it really erodes their sense of, of connection that they can potentially experience. The American sex therapist, Clayton Barbone, talks about, you know, doing this very He's a very old, he's, I think he's lucky. He's, he's, he's probably, he's at least he may retired. be close to dead now, dead. but he, talk, he talks through the history of understanding of sexual intercourse and he talks about orgasm being a big focus. And he said, you know, in the... In whatever twenty something, we scientists named orgasm. I mean, been around for millennia. Female around. orgasm. Female orgasm. So you'll you'll find I have to. She has to sort me out all the time. the details on this story. Yeah. Go on. And Female, anyway, when you men had orgasm, yeah, time. but they call it. Yeah, so they discovered orgasm, but only something like ninety percent of women experienced it. And then they went further on, and you know, another decade later, they discovered SO, SO simultaneous orgasm, but only seventy percent of couples experienced that. And then they went on further with your studying sexual you know, behaviour, etc. They discovered multiple orgasms. They discovered it's been around forever, but they declared it. Yeah. Uh, and only 10% of couples experience, women, yeah. of women experience that. And he said, and then we had this explosion of male infancy. He said, we didn't have any infancy. The men just got gave up. The men gave up. It got too hard. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, the only thing that matters when we make love is, did you feel connected to me? Did you feel loved? Did you feel loved? That's the only thing that matters. There's no, there's no physical dimension to lovemaking. There's a physical act, but there's no physical benchmark to lovemaking in terms of it was good or bad or ordinary or whatever. Or a 
failure. But if we, yeah, and, it, and it has if got that's, a... If that's what you understand love to be, well, if you don't have an orgasm, or it's not the most explosive orgasm you've ever had to date, you're not living up to the expectations of what the culture is doing. And that's why we see this sort of extreme sexuality happening in our culture where people are pushing the boundaries and the barriers all the time to try and make it more exciting, more erotic, more of this and more of that, um, and putting each other under enormous pressure because they're feeling like they're failing each other. So it's like the food analogy I gave a moment ago. Is the purpose of sex pleasure? No, it's not the purpose. It's an outcome. Is the purpose of food pleasure? No, but it's pleasurable to eat, particularly sometimes. Right? So, it's, again, it's not saying that sex should not be pleasurable. Of course it could. should be. We've got made it. But it's not as focus. It's not as primary goal. And um, just one yeah. quick point on this. I mean, this is a very practical reality. I don't know about you guys, but we're pretty busy. We've got five children. We're responsible of, people. Lots of responsibilities. Good practicing Catholics. If sex is just a recreational activity, you know what happens. It goes way down at the bottom of the to-do list. But, yeah, we've got to pay bills. We've got to return phone calls. We've got to clean up the kitchen, get the washing done. I don't have a lot of time for recreation. Yeah. And if I take a mindset that sex is recreational and it's a reward for when everything's perfect between us, and the stars are in the right place and the moon's there and romantic, you know, we will never have sex, right? And, and, and as funny as we laugh about it, there was a... a, a but you're only laughing because you know it's true. <laughs> as much as we laugh about it, um, this American author called this out with a cover of Newsweek about a decade ago called The Sex-Starved Marriage. Well, she just called out this very simple behaviour. Married couples have forgotten. We're just too so busy. They had put sex into the basis of it was a reward for a good relationship rather than a fundamental form of communication between a husband and wife. Making love is as important as talking. And if we don't understand that and we forget that, we're leaving a primary form of communication out of our relationship. Now, that's a big statement, but we know that that's true. And, and, and this is where the church, you know, the church comes in. The church basically says the purpose of sex is life-giving union. Life-giving in every sense of the word. It's procreative. It creates life. We create life through sexual intercourse. And that obviously applies in terms of the potential new life through a, you know, a child, might be, but also in terms of creating life within us and giving each other life and energy. There's been times in our lives where we've been so hurt with each other that words weren't going to do it. And in our brokenness, we literally crawled into bed and made love. Not to make love, but to hold each other. And that love-making, by any cinema standards, would have been a very ordinary. But God's healing presence was in that moment. And we achieved with our bodies what we couldn't do with our words. That total act of self-giving at the physical dimension brings into a physical reality what we say on the altar when we make our wedding vows. I give myself to you. Totally, freely, faithfully, fruitfully, completely. The act of love is literally... We still call it making love. We still, in our culture, with all its brokenness, we still call it making love. Because actually that's what we're doing. We still don't say they're having sex. We still say, well, they had sex or something. But we don't say... It It feels cruder when you say that. People still talk about making love. Because that's what we're doing. Whether you realise it or not, you're making love. And so the church says, and this is a celibate popes are saying this, for crying out loud. It's a sacred body language. And, and if you're talking to teenagers about this, and you want to talk about evangelisation again, as, as our wise old Jesuit said, until people understand the wow, 
of what lovemaking is in the context of a, of a union of two people for life. Until we understand what that wow is, then the no to sex before marriage makes no sense. Because that meaning that we give when we make love actually is an act of the marriage vows. We actually act them out. And that's why a marriage is not considered valid until you consummate it. The church doesn't consider your marriage... It's not over when you left the church. It's over when you consummate your marriage because you finally... Take it's never over, really, but okay. it's no, not completed until... It's not complete. The marriage is not complete until you consummate it. This is church talking. Right? It's amazing when you think about it. We think the church has got all these hang-ups about sex and doesn't understand it. They've got the most unbelievably rich understanding. So, so I think one of the things that's really helpful is to contrast the cultural view that sees sex is really as an activity and then the church just telling us it's not an activity, it's a communication. It's not so, so much something you do as something you say. And what are we saying when we make love? Well, in essence, what we're saying with our bodies is the words of our vows. So I freely give myself to you, Byron, all that I am, everything, you know, everything of who I am, who I am. Everything I am, my future, my past. Um, I accept you and your total personhood, your past, your you know your faults, your limitations, your greatness, your gifts, your talents, um, and you know, yeah. And to you and to your own, you know that exclusivity. That's what we're saying to each other. I hold and nothing. I hold nothing back from you. I mean, we're we're naked, right? I mean, if you go. What are we holding back, right? I mean, think about it. I want to be bonded to you. And to you, you know, to you and future generations through our children. So that whole interconnectedness with the next generation is such a powerful part of it. Um, so that's, you know, I think that's a completely different understanding. And when you put that in, it kind of contrasts that to sort of the debates we're having in the culture around marriage and its redefinition. That just isn't even coming up. But you can see why the church is standing so firm on it because this is such a fundamentally different approach to the purpose and meaning of sexual love in the relationship. So, if you start to... We've got one more to go, but if you start to build these blocks together, what is our understanding of love? What is the purpose of marriage? Our understanding of marriage? What do we understand about sexual lovemaking? You can start to understand how marriage is evangelising not just to each other, but also for a couple who are living that life publicly, because you do, you walk around, people see you. They see your generosity, they see your acts of kindness to each other. They see you holding back, putting up the things that they know must drive you nuts about this other person. All those cute little things you thought were so cute when you first fell in love <laughs> start to drive you bloody batty after ten years, <laughs> and still you turn up, right? And they see couples in heroic... talking hypothetically. You see, couples, <laughs> myself, actually. Uh, you see couples in heroic circumstances who haven't walked away from their marriage, right? They are all witnesses. They are all evangelising messages, not through words, but through actions. So let's go to the last one. Yeah, you can't talk about marriage without talking about gender. Um, and, and I think marriage is, you know, marriage is, uh, is one of those great mysteries because I don't get women. I never will. 
Yeah. No, no man will never understand. No, this is. No man will ever understand the female psyche properly. And vice versa. Mind you, women are completely different. We understand men perfectly, don't we, girls? <laughs> no. Don't you wish? And Francine is a. We've got five kids, and Francine says, I don't get it with you know, Christopher. What is. What don't you get? I understand. <laughs> I know exactly where he's coming from. You know, we just, and, and here we are. We're going to spend our life together. Just, not just, you know, and we're supposed to actually become this one, one flesh union. And I don't even get it. Um, and, and this is where the culture comes from. The culture sort of sees these differences between men and women. And they say it's a problem. Yeah, it's at it's some white level, it's a problem. And in fact, right. really, since the advent of radical feminism, you know, half a century or more ago, almost a century ago, there's really been very much a war on masculinity, um, which we're seeing the fruits of that, or the negative fruits of that, um, that now. But we've seen, you know, a lot of men who are struggling to really embrace their masculinity. We've got this phenomenon of adultessence. I don't know if you've heard that word before, particularly amongst young men who in their 30s and 40s, they're still behaving like little boys, you know, they, they're not ready to marry and settle down and raise a family. It's like, well, you know, not ready by 40, when are you going to be ready? But and that's the fruit the of some of this yeah. kind of gender confusion. They might not be sort of wondering whether they're male or not, but what they're struggling with is what does a true man look like? How does a true man behave? And they've lost the masculine role models. So we had men for Mars and women for Venus, and John Gray, Gray did a great service to cultures because he actually called out in the in, in the late eighties, I think it was, that we are different in a time in history when we were saying actually there was no difference between. It was all just socialisation, and then if we just treated little boys and girls exactly the now same, now we're not talking. We wouldn't see any. Let's be clear: we're not talking about rights. We're talking about psyche and behaviour, and we're not talking about everybody on opposite ends of a spectrum. We have spectrums. But in general, men tend to sit in certain areas on that spectrum, and women. doesn't mean you can't do certain things. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do certain things. But when your mind works a certain way, you have a paradigm for which you see the world, which is generally like this is a man, and generally like that is a woman. And we know from the scientific research that has come through in the last few years that actually those gender differences are... Our, they're, they're brain, they're chemically based and they're, they're uh, physiologically based and it starts from the earliest stage in utero that from uh, four or five weeks the presence of testosterone is changing the brain of male and boy babies to be different. We'll, we'll so men can, will and should be thinking differently to the way women think. So we'll talk about some of those in a minute but, but what the culture offers up with men are from Mars and women are from Venus where we still basically are sitting in that, that space of the late 80s is that therefore you'll never get it. So just lower your expectations. He's always going to be like that. She's always going to be like that. Just work around it. Okay, that's that's the sort of the message, the subtext that goes with it. So he's going into his cave in the, in the sort of paradigm of John Gray's book. He's going to his cave and she's going into the well and just get over it because that's the way it's going to be. And so it's sort of a tolerance message, but with this sort of lower expectations. And we think that's... Boys will be boys, you know, well, she's... You know. yeah. and, and what the church basically is saying is our differences actually are a complement to extend us. They're, they're actually, actually part of God's plan. And they're part of drawing us out and helping us to be more for each other. That when, you know, we're together, Byron draws out my femininity and helps me to extend, um, be really true to my true feminine self. And similarly, my love for Byron allows him to be truly masculine. 
if you, if you go back to Scripture, to Genesis, and this is not, you know, in, in the realms of looking for insights from Scripture rather than taking fundamentalistic literal interpretations in the 20th century or something that was written, actually we don't know when, uh, with all the troubles that causes, there's a, there's a great sense, and this is what John Paul and the Popes have picked out, um, particularly in recent years through Theology of the Body, is that you know, God talks about male and female, he created them. And it's, in, it's as a man and as a woman we witness God and we, we, represent, we, we image God, not as a man or as a woman. It's together. It's together. And, and if, you, if you're in marriage, for those who are married here, what you realise after a while is that a wife, because of that intimate relationship, will draw out an aspect of, as a man, my masculinity that I will never find by myself. And I won't let anybody, any other woman draw out, probably. Because Francine is in me in a way that nobody else will get inside this person. And vice versa, we actually, we actually change and it draws us out. It's a complementary pull from the other person. And it's a real richness that comes out of that. Our differences are a cause of celebration. So I know that when Francine is calling me, for example, into intimate conversation and emotional sharing, which as a, as a typical man, I don't seek that often, it's actually good for me to do that, even though I don't necessarily feel like it at the time. And vice versa, when I call her out on my masculine dimensions. So, and, so there's a real richness. The church is actually saying your gender differences... Yeah, they can be a cause of problems, but they're actually the richness that will actually make you more fully human if you can really work with those. Do you want to just take a little bit of a pause? Just take your pulse, get a bit of reaction from you, thoughts, insights, things that really struck you. We've got a little bit more to talk about, but I think it's a good place. Well, I'm not trying to compare you two to another two that I've been reading about, and a lifelong passion. It's the story and love letters I've been reading of Tsar Nicholas II and Alexandra. They had five children like you, and they wrote to, the, to each other until they, he died, until they all died, and they numbered all their letters. So I ask you the question, do you write to each other, number one? Number two, I tend to disagree with you about this 18 months stuff about falling out of love. I don't believe that. I believe that the passion between each couple is up to them, and it could be a lifelong one like this yes. couple. Yeah. It could be 10, 15, 20, 30 years. So why have you chosen this 18 months? No, 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 no. Yes, exactly. good, good question. Good, good. Okay. Yeah. Let's go to the first question. Do we write to each other not enough? You, well, no, you not enough. your letters. That's right. Yes. Yes. Uh, and second two. one, number two. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so I think it was be a ball. Um, you're right. You can sustain it, but it takes effort. And the problem is, is that when we fall in love, it seems, to, it appears oh, to us stronger. to be effort, effortless. No, stronger than that. Sorry, um, I think we've, 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 if that's what you've heard, we didn't say it correctly. What we're saying is that when you first fall in love, there's an incredibly intense moment, that infatuation period, which subsides. You can have a life, we think we do, we have a life of yeah. love affair. It gets we're very, from that grows mature love. That can be passionate and that... You know, and that is a more But your point's right. It's built by how you choose to do it. And that yes. is the point. It's yeah. a choice. You can choose to have a lifelong, passionate love affair, or you can choose to be subject to your emotions and wake up each morning and see, well, I wonder what today's going to bring. Yeah. Right? And, and, and I can tell you right now is, you know, we, we wake up some days and it's a beautiful Saturday morning like this morning, the sun's shining, and you think, today's going to be a great day. Don't have to do much. We're going to have a lovely day together. 
and you go downstairs or wherever it might be in the kitchen, and within 30 seconds of speaking to each other, <laughs> you, go, you go bump. <laughs> and five minutes later, you're standing there thinking, what the hell happened? And how did I get here? Right? You, you're all, all, we've all experienced this who are in married relationships. And, and if we just work on feelings, then that day is a disaster. Whereas if we work on will, we say, okay, what do I choose to do now? Right? What do I choose to do now? And we've got a chance to get out of that situation rather than lose another day together. But you're actually right. The, the, if, we, if we left the impression we're talking about after 18 months, you no longer feel you love, that's not true. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. Mm. Yes, please. Um, what you were saying before, they always say to me, you're a mistress. <laughs> I can never work you out. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. It's the greatest puzzle you can have. Yeah. Thank God for that. We still love each other. That's right. Yes. Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. And you've got the whole lifetime. If she wasn't a mystery, you would have got bored of And, like, that's a great thing for a guy, because if you excuse my crassness, we get to tinker <laughs> <laughs> to try and work out how to make it, how it works. Yeah. And then I wanted to say also that uh, when we, we, we fell in love initially, we weren't very much in love. But then it's sort of never... See, I'm not contradicting you. This is our experience. It never sort of diminished, but it's sort of... Um, uh, went more, not like that, but sort of like that. Yes. But now we love each other even more, but in a different way. Yes. We understand each other yes. more. I can only look at him and he might be talking to somebody. Yeah. And give an example. And, and he, might not, he might not agree with the other person. The other person goes on, doesn't realize that I think, oh, goodness, I think I risk you say, well, yes. yeah, <laughs> So you can know you can know each other so well that you can read each other's body language, but you don't even have to speak yeah. it. That's right. Yeah. And that's the sign of a really mature love that grows from that infatuation experience. Yeah. I still think God's presence is in that infatuation experience, yeah. and he, he puts that there to give us a foundation. But from there, we need to then put down the foundations to build um, a stronger, mature love. And cool. a lot of people, unfortunately... You know, don't know how to do that, but that's it's what you've done, and that's because wonderful. even um, like a long walk, the one that we did have to work at it. You know, like I said, I'll come and help when you say this, I'm not happy with you that, they say the same with me. And uh, there was a stage that they say, um, I said, Well, you know, I've been, you know, you got through little stages, stages, and I say to him, Well, you know, I, I, I don't really think, I think you're taking me for granted, I don't really think you love me that much. You know? But I married you. <laughs> so that means I love you. I told you I loved you, you know, nothing when twenty years ago. <laughs> you know. So well, you're a wonderful wonderful evangelizing witness, thank you. I'll just get one last question and then we'll move on if that's okay. Yeah. You know, often we heard especially from all couples. Yes. And even the not so old couples that the only reason why they stay together is A is because of two. And B is for companionship. Yeah. And, and there's no mention of love in the that companionship. And this is a very, very sad situation. Yeah. Because you are forcing yourself to be in that relationship. Yes. Even though you're, 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 your inner self is telling you, I want to get out of here, but because of your children, because of companionship, they don't stay together. So I think that's, that's where we, they should. Do people think of when you walked in here? You obviously chose. I don't know why you chose this workshop, but do people do you think think of a marriage as evangelising force? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. 
She still asks one more question. And the reason is because I want to know more how I can be a better person than the person who is in the world. Yeah. Okay. That's all we're going to talk about now. So, perfect segue. Thank you. We want to kind of take that background now. So, that's just a little bit of a summary of it. We can go to the next one. We now want to take what we talked about and then kind of put it together into some practical strategies. So we just want to flesh out a little bit about how men and women connect and introduce you to this idea of loving smart or smart loving as we call it. Firstly, I think it's really helpful to think about connection or communication um, as having two fundamental streams, if you like. So we've got our verbal communication, which we use all the time in lots of different walks of life and all lots of different relationships, and we've got a physical communication. And of course, in marriage, it's got a very explicit dimension to the physical, which includes the sexual intercourse and, and sexual union. Um, so just thinking now in the context of marriage, not other general relationships, I think it's very helpful to appreciate that our verbal communication and our, our physical communication can both be either very soulful and meaningful and pertinent and powerful, or they can be soulless. Um, in other words, they can be devoid of that sense of, of authenticity, devoid of the emotional vulnerability, and so on. Um, and what we really want to encourage as couples is a very soulful communication on both the verbal and physical. And secondly, I think there's also quite some significant gender biases that can be really helpful to understand. Yeah, the next yeah. Slide. yeah. Um, so if we look at um, verbal language firstly, one of the things that we've noticed in our work, and it's also come through the research, is that we tend to use it a little bit differently as men and women. So when I get together with my girlfriends, go to a coffee shop, we order a coffee and cake, but it's really not the point of getting together. The reason to get together is to share. And when we start talking and the barriers go down and we're sharing very personally and we're crying with each other and we're laughing with each other and sharing each other's triumphs and joys. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? And the coffee is just a little bit of it's a bit of lubricant, you know. It's, it's about getting it going, really. Whereas men will tend to use verbal language to convey information. It's a much more pragmatic kind of approach to it. Now, there's a role for both. But just the facts, just the facts, man. <laughs> and you know, there's something that drives me more insane when Byron, you know, says that to me or something to that effect. Francis starts telling me something. I go. Because I'm sitting there thinking, what is the point of this? Am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? You want me to lift something up, fix something, put it down? I mean, what am I supposed to do? I'm getting all this information. What do you want me to do? And what she wants me to do is understand. Just be with me in the moment, right? But I you get it, Will? The guys don't because they're operating out of this. They're sort of saying, where's the instructions? What do I need to fix? Yeah. And so if we can appreciate that difference, it can help us to craft the way we, we as women start conversations with our men. Um, it can also help men to sort of help them get out of that headspace of what do I need to fix and think about she just wants me she just wants me to be present. Okay, and we need to be able to step out of our comfort zone. Because it becomes really helpful when Francine starts telling me what a terrible day she had and what this person did, etc. And, and, and I'm hearing it as information, and I'm hearing it as a male. And of course, males do things. So I give. So her, he's saying, "Well, I'll call someone tomorrow." I will give her advice. I tell her what she should have done, or I give her advice. Because surely, why, why else would you be telling me this? And there's nothing that Francine loves more is advice from me 
when she doesn't need it. <laughs> and so here we go. Collision of the gender difference. We said before that the gender differences cause problems. This is it where it plays out. It plays out in the heart of this because men and women have two fundamentally different forms of communication. So look at your body language, that physical communication. Men will use sex particularly, but more generally their physical dimension as a means of connection. Most so men I'm... make friendships by doing things side by side. We go out and we dig a hole together. We don't well, say a lot. We play footy together. We play footy together, right? I mean, I played touch footy with a bunch of mates for years after I left school. You know, we didn't have much breath to talk during the game. We <laughs> well, usually swore game. at each other. In a way, when we started playing mixed, the girls couldn't get their heads around because we'd get on the field and we'd swear our heads off at each other, you know, and then we'd get off the field and we'd be best mates. And the women were absolutely shattered because, you know, <laughs> he just said, But the friendship was formed by the common activity. Men's, men use their bodies to communicate, literally. And so, and same with our friendships, so, and same with our relationships. When Francine has been hurt by me or by somebody, but when she's hurt by me, my instinctual male reaction is to reach out and touch her. Or to do, or to do something, to fix, to something. fix but, something. But, but, but my instinctual reaction yep. in, for my wife is to reach out and touch her. When I've hurt Francine, the last thing she wants at that moment is a hug. <laughs> no, seriously. No, seriously, right? But my instinctual way of loving, when, when I'm hurt by Francine, she reaches out to me by coming at me verbally. I want to talk about it. Tell me, what did I do? I'm so sorry. Can we talk about it? Please, you know, let's sort this out. Men experience that as being henpecked. No, seriously. Right, she, and 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 the more she does it, the more I push her back. I just want some space. The more she pursues me, right, and the more space I want, and the more she pursues me, right, and you can start to see what happens is we have a completely different language system. So it's like my grandfather who fell in love as an Italian with an English woman and didn't speak English. And she didn't and she, speak she, Italian. She didn't speak Italian. <laughs> they both spoke French. Oh, wow. So they fell in love and then they learned each other's languages. We don't have that. My language is physical. I can talk, but my primary human instinct as a man, my primary masculine instinct is not to share emotionally. It's to act, to do, to fix, to protect, to serve, to earn money, care for my family. That's my primary way of showing love, communicating love. Francine's primary way is, is to get to know me emotionally, to open herself up, to try and understand me. So she comes at me that way and I come around this way and we go like this. <laughs> right? And, it hurt, and, and not only does it miss, it's hurtful. You can do a poetry course. I could. Yes. I've got the name for it. But we go like this. And not just do we miss each other, it's hurtful. Because guess what happens? I reach out to Francine because I want to show her I love her. She pushes him away. It takes that as a rejection. It's a rejection. I reach out to him and he says, not now, dear. I pick up the paper. Yeah, huh, uh huh. And I uh -huh. see that as a rejection. He's not he there. Want to know me. I didn't realise she wanted to share with me. I just thought she was just rabbiting on. You know? So we don't understand what's well, going on. Well, it's not about rabbiting on, guys. It's the sport play. She's, getting, she's working up to the really deep stuff, but you don't just dive straight in. You've got to kind of. And same with the lovemaking. You don't walk, right? a husband doesn't walk into the, the house and says, Honey, we're making love in 15 minutes. <laughs> he, he walks up to it and he goes, You know, how was your day? Right? And she goes, oh, look, I'm just getting dinner ready. Okay. I'll back off. I'm not wanted. My way of reaching out to you is not effective. I am impotent to connect with you. 
She never said that. It's what he heard. He never said to her, I don't care about your day, I don't want to listen to you. But that's what she heard. So we have this fundamental disconnect. But think of the richness now. Go back to what we said before. Now Francis, flip it around. She starts to draw me out emotionally. How was your day? Let me tell you about mine. Why are you feeling... You seem sad at the moment. Men men don't work that way. They don't think about it. They don't process it. But she draws me out that way. Right? Francine doesn't feel, you know, she, she doesn't feel, you know, as feminized as when I'm actually physically, literally loving her. It's her most feminine moment. Right? So I can draw out her femininity in a way that, you know, she will never her friends will never draw it out. So think of the richness. But think of the potential disconnect, well, not the potential, the, the reality of the disconnect. And I think this is just I just want to mention this. Um, you know, Byron will reach out to me to make love and draw me close physically to express his desire to be close to me. Whereas I tend to think about lovemaking and think common with most people. We think of, well, we make love to celebrate the intimacy we've already got. And so if we're not feeling really close together, well, I don't feel like making love. And why should I make love if I don't feel like it, right? That's the way the mentality don't even know him at the moment. tells us. He's we haven't been to see him all day, I haven't had to see him all week, he's been travelling. You know, he wants to be close to me, we need to talk first, right, so that we can get to get back in touch. And then we make love to celebrate the intimacy and the communion and the connection we've already got. And we completely overlook the power of lovemaking to form that connection. And that's something we really very much challenge women on because we've kind of told ourselves that we have the right to say no to lovemaking or not yet or later. With our husbands. Picture this and for not only is it incredibly painful, but when you look at the sacrament and how sex is so central to the, the, the essence of the sacrament, we're actually saying no is something that we should never be saying no to. It's not like saying no, I don't want to receive communion. It's like, are you crazy? <laughs> you know? It should be because something that we're yearning for. Picture this for a minute. We're, in a, uh, we're observing as, as um, counsellors, a marriage counsellor, through that mirror. Mirror glass. Mirror glass. And in there's a married couple working with a counsellor. And we're sitting in here as students and we listen to this and we can hear it all. And the counsellor says, Look, here's what I want you to do in the next week. I don't want you to make. I don't want. Because they're, they're completely disconnected in their relationship. He says, For the next week, I don't want you to have any romantic physical intimacy between each other unless everything between you is right and you're really feeling really loving towards you. So don't, don't try. Unless you're feeling really connected, don't try. For the next week, don't do anything. We all sit there, just like you are now, saying, reasonable. Imagine now if he said to them, I don't want you to talk at any meaningful level for the next week, unless everything's feeling connected between you. We'd probably think you a chair up and throw it to the mirror. And say, don't listen to this moron, you've got to talk. A marriage can't survive without talking, communication. We all know this, right? But we don't blink when we completely drop out the other <coughs> form of communication, which is the sexual, sexual communication. The physical, I'm not just talking about making love, I'm talking about all the little things we do, the touch, the smile, the, you know, the hug, the, when you, whatever it might be. And it goes back to this fundamental issue. We all thought before that we weren't caught up in the, the, the culture's view that sex is just for pleasure. We think we're all above that. Actually, no, we all behave this way because we see sex as a reward system a good marriage, not as a fundamental communication method. And the problem with that, the problem for that is it's completely emasculated for men. 
because what it says without the men even realising, because most men don't understand this, that their best way of loving is, is not really material to the success of the relationship or the success of loving between you. So there's a, there's a poignant thought, because if you don't understand this, it's really hard to become an evangelising force in marriage, because so your marriage becomes dry. So we want to just now put it together with this concept of smart loving, which is simply learning to love the other person, my spouse, the way he most needs to be loved. So to do that, I need to firstly be knowing him, studying him, working out what ways, what are the things that I can do, what are the ways I can interact with him that speak love to him. And I now know from our gender differences and from also being in personal relationship with him and observing all the nuances and the unique individual characteristics of this man over 20, more than 24 years, that the sexual love man is a really powerful, one very powerful way, not the only way, but one very powerful way. And he knows, Byron knows how to love me very effectively. Um, so it's very much about being other-centred. You see, the way we tend to love, everybody experiences love uniquely and differently. And the way we tend to love is the way we experience love. Yeah. So if you feel loved when somebody gives you flowers like I do, I tend to give people flowers. And that's how I say oh, flowers. The flowers get flowers, right there. Of course not. I, I love, the way I express love, it's instinctual for me, is small extravagant gifts. So if I've been travelling a lot and haven't seen Francine, and I come through Sydney Airport, typical desperate husband, by Friday night, I haven't called him up during the week. So I buy at what I call the desperate husband shop some little chocolates, you know, the little uh, very expensive truffles. truffles and things like that. Why? Because I love chocolate and I love small extravagant, small extravagant gestures. Finger. So what I do is I do instinctually what is loving to me which is to buy some lovely chocolates. And I come trotting home and I say, here you go, honey, I bought you some chocolates. Francine doesn't like chocolate that much. And she hates extravagant waste. So she's looking at $15 for four little chocolates or something ridiculous. And she says, and she's a good wife, and she understands it's a gesture. And she says, thanks, darling, and she puts them in the fridge. So I'm thinking, I'll keep them for when we got business. 10 o'clock that night, 10 o'clock that night, I go to the fridge thinking, I'm snacky. And I open up the fridge, I never take the last one. In my defence, I never take the last one. And about two weeks later, the non-chocolate interesting person goes and says, I'm going to have one of that. I'm going to have the last of those chocolates. This is not smart loving. This is instinctual loving. It's loving the way you like to be loved, rather than the way the other person experiences love. But right? now that I'm doing more of the travelling... I buy him the chocolates. <laughs> because I know that's how he likes to be loved. So, so it makes sense so for him to buy chocolates. It's a silly thing for him to buy. So, so I, I, I would go and buy Francine a dozen roses. She loves flowers, but she doesn't like extravagant waste, so she likes one rose. That's nice. I so learned he that. One rose. I learned that. In fact, if he buys one rose 20 times, he gets 20 points. If he buys 20 roses once, he gets one point. He gets none. He gets none. He gets none. <laughs> that's right. Right. And now the, so, so this, the Productivity Commission would love this. <laughs> this is efficient marriage. Right? So you go to love, you've got to study the other person and love them the way they like to be loved so you can hit the target. And it's not that hard, you know, because you know what? We did this when we were actually engaged. We were studying this other person like mad, trying to work out what they liked and didn't like and try to do the right thing by them. And then we get married and we just go into our comfort zone. Right? And the men do it because, you know, they've accomplished it. Done. Got the dragon. <laughs> <laughs> I brought it home. Done. Slay the dragon. Slay the dragon. Slay the 
I slayed the dragon. It's done. It's done. Now I can sit and drink my beer. Yeah, we 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 forget that the person's changing. We don't realise that it's a bottomless pit of knowledge, right? And, and so the, the trick for smart loving, the trick for a, an evangelising marriage, is to love people the way they most powerfully experience love. And if you go to the heart of what we said a moment ago, then I understand as a man the best way to love Francine is to emotionally connect with her. To be emotionally available to Francine, to be prepared to talk and listen in a vulnerable way, that's the most loving, because that's her love language. And for Francine, it's to be open to me physically, to see my gestures of love not as an itch to be scratched, because I'm a guy, but rather my way of trying to show her that she's the cherished, precious thing of my life, and to connect with her. And, and that's, that's smart loving at its extreme, where you start to learn his English and her Italian. Not because it's instinctually easy for you to do, but you realise I can communicate better in her native tongue compared to actually working out here in this other world or, or just miscommunicating. So there's the challenge of smart loving. So then the question is, that's, that's, that's big. Good. You know, that's like, oh my God, now what do I do tomorrow how do you morning? You've got to break it down. How do you, to how do you bring this into a relationship do. today rather than live to that, you know, try and do that impossible thing? So all of our practical strategies we conform to these three guidelines are going to be simple, they're going to be effective and something you can do every day to have impact. So, so the first one we like to suggest is the Connect Hub. This is just holding each other for one minute at a time. You can do it in the kitchen with the kids around, you can do it in the supermarket. It's fantastic to do it when you just feel yourselves on a bit of edge, you know, you get in that moment where you're just a bit snappy at each other. It hasn't all helped, all hell hasn't broken loose yet, but you're just on edge. Um, it's sort of like setting the reset button. It's a circuit breaker. You just hold each other, um, breathe in deeply and relax. And it's amazing. After about a minute, you actually feel your physiology change. Um, and your breathing starts to synchronise and your spirit just settles and gets calm and the defences drop and... It's beautiful. It's a really, trust us, it really, really does work. So yeah. it takes roughly a minute, but just hold each other until you feel that sense of connection again and you can let go of the anger or the resistance or the argument that you are having and, and you can just let go. And the stupid thing about married couples is everybody's sitting there thinking, a minute? Hold <coughs> each other for a minute? You mean a whole minute? You talk to two dating couples, it's like, a minute, that's it? You go, <laughs> you're not serious, are you? I mean, that's, you know, that's amateur hour. <laughs> I mean, married couples get so disconnected, right? Partly because we can make love. <coughs> the irony of being able to make love is everything else actually, all that repertoire of actually being physically connected when you were dating. You just, you jettison. You forget how to do it. This is... And there's no powerful. words required at all. Yeah. happening at the physical communication. Right? So there's no reason why a married couple, I don't, I don't know of any reason other than physical separation being on the opposite side of the country, why a married couple, irrespective of how out of sorts with each other, they can't physically for one minute during the day hug each other for one minute. Don't talk. If you can't talk with each other... Don't once a day. No, but, but, but yeah. just do it for once a day. And if you're out of sorts and you're, and you're, gonna, and you're fighting with each other, shut up and hug each other. <laughs> because I guarantee you, it's like a... Re you literally, you'll feel... You try it when you get home. You f you'll feel yourself just going... <sighs> it's a reset. Remember, and it doesn't mean, mean all of a sudden you walk out... <gasps> beautiful. But you walk, you, you reset you the relationship at a different yeah. point. And, and you can later. resume the discussion, but now it's a discussion, it's not an argument. 
now you now you're trying to find a solution collectively. You're not trying to make your case. Um, Daily strongest feeling. Now this is a verbal one, and it doesn't again. It doesn't have to be a big long discussion. But we just ask each other. So what was your strongest feeling today? And one of the things that we've noticed over you know 24 years of marriage, when we the first year that we were married and we didn't have any children, we'd come home and we'd talk and talk and share, share everything that was happened, and we were just hungry to know what was happening in each other's lives. It was easy then. And then we had three babies in four years, and it got really busy, and a house and a mortgage and you know careers and everything was happening, and we found that we just weren't communicating really at all. And it's impossible to really try and communicate to the same level that we were when we were first married. But we can take five or ten minutes to talk about the most significant thing that one, we did in our day. Sorry? One minute. Yeah. You, what the, you see, the, the neat thing about this, particularly for a guy, right, I just said before that my, my challenge is to connect to Francine in her love language, which is emotional. I don't know how to start that. But give me something I can do. Okay, I can ask Francine every day before the day ends, what was your strongest feeling today? I can do that. And you can share his. And I can share mine. That's just not, not the most important, just what was the strongest. It doesn't have to be good or bad or whatever, but I can always find my strongest, right? It doesn't have to be big. Some days it's really trivial. You know, what was my strongest feeling today? It was probably actually that enjoyable moment out there when we got here early and there was nobody here because you were all out doing things. We went and had a coffee. And it was just a nice half hour together. That's my strongest feeling. But now what have we actually done when we've done that? In our busy lives, we've connected on the most significant emotional moment of our day and we've shared it. It doesn't take much more than what I just did. Now, it might turn into a five-minute conversation. Or more. Or more, but it doesn't have to. But what the research shows is the average married couple talks on an intimate personal basis on average for 30 seconds a day. So this would at least quadruple the average, because it takes about a minute each to do it. <laughs> and and what it does, it does two things. Oh, yeah. What it does is it does two things. It open, it keeps in touch with the big things. It does three things. It opens the conversation. So if you want to start something, you can, you can you can pick it up. And it also raises your own self awareness. And one of the things about actually living a life together is you can't share yourself until you know yourself. So my, my advice to people before they were they going to share a feeling is shut up and think for a minute. First engage brain, then engage mouth. Right? So I think this is really powerful. We're almost done. We can hear them all going there. Do you mind just one couple more minutes? Yes. Um, and the third and final one is daily appreciation. Sounds like really third, but I want to explain to you why this works. So simply all it is is that every day, just saying at least one thing, I appreciated about you today, Byron, was when I said I wanted to get in here early and I didn't want to be in a rush, um, you came and you, you were happy to do that, even though I know you had lots of things to do at home before we left, and you probably would have to have got some of those things done. So I really appreciate that you were prepared to make me there. So there we go. It can be something like that. Now, what he hears, he's smart about this, he's listening to what I'm saying I appreciate. Because when I say I appreciate that, it's really code for saying, I felt loved when you did that. Now, he's a smart loving guy. He knows that whenever I feel love, that's something that he needs to register as, this is the way she feels loved. She feels loved when I give her time. And he can kind of add that to his repertoire of ways that Francine feels loved. So it's not, I'm not doing that manipulatively. I'm not saying what I appreciate because I'm trying to instruct him on how to love me. It's a genuine thing, and it's what I appreciate. But it has, a dual use that, it has a dual benefit. But I can use that information 
to then build my understanding of the Byronese. I can honestly say that there is not a single time in our relationship, no matter how hurt we are with each other on that moment, where we can't honestly stop and say one thing I appreciated about you this day. Because there's always something you can appreciate. The fact, you know, the, the fact, fact that you didn't walk out. The fact you didn't. <laughs> the fact you actually went to work today. It's not a big thing, but actually, if I stop, we, we, we don't say this stuff, but we are appreciative of all sorts of things. So if you go through your marriage, starting this afternoon, and you make sure that in the last 24 hours you've hugged each other for one minute, in the last 24 hours you've steered your strongest feeling, and in the last 24 hours you've said something that you've appreciated about the other person, you're doing three things. You're building a culture, a life-giving culture, in your relationship, where at least once a day you hear you've done something successful for your marriage. I've done something as a man that's great for a woman, is I've entered into her emotional life to talk about a feeling. And Francine's responded to me, or is responding together in a way that is physical and is speaking my language. And then we go from there. This stuff works, and it's so easy that there's nobody who can't do it. So if you want to be an evangelizer, Start with your own marriage in small steps. It's like dieting and exercise. Just start with small steps and go. Thank you very much. God bless. Thank you. Radio.org.au